Hello, movie fans. It's Real Old Reels with Robin. And Lisa. And we're back with another great film discussion for you. We are on our fourth and final week of our romantic movie marathon in honor of Valentine's Day. Apparently, we like them sad because our earlier films this month included An Affair to Remember, Casablanca, and Roman Holiday. All sad selections. But this week, (laughs) we're ending on a high note with Lisa's favorite. Are you excited, Lisa? I am. So a little insight into our life growing up. We didn't have cable TV or really any TV channels in our home. But we did have a fairly extensive VHS collection. At least I felt like it was much bigger and more varied than most of my friends. And we were only allowed to watch movies on the weekends. But I went through these phases where every weekend I would watch the same thing. I'm sure you were super excited about that, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It happened one night was probably my longest phase, I think. And I've watched this movie so many times. And it's funny that I was so in love with it as a kid. Like, it's a 1930s movie. But I loved this movie. Yeah, I do remember watching it quite a bit. And some of your other... (laughs) other phases and that was and that was fine especially since you normally you have good taste lisa and it happened one <laughs> night <laughs> it happened one night makes a huge mark in the history books for several reasons it swept the oscars it pioneered a genre and deftly eased the transition into the new 1934 production code which code would drastically change the american film landscape forever we'll get into all that after you tell us what It Happened One Night is all about. So I wasn't lying last week when I said there were quite a few similarities between the storyline of this movie and Roman Holiday. Very distinctly different movies, but a lot of similarities too. So Ellie Andrews, played by Claudette Colbert, is the somewhat spoiled daughter of extremely wealthy Alexander Andrews. In the beginning, we learn that she is recently married to King Wesley, who her father assumes is a fortune hunter. Her father's trying to get the marriage annulled, but Ellie is over 21, and so is Wesley, so she is obviously feeling a bit stifled by her father. He essentially kidnapped her on his yacht in Miami until he can get the marriage annulled, and she escapes into the water with the plan of reuniting with her new husband in New York. Her father immediately tries to find her, and the news is in all the papers that she's on the run. Meanwhile, Ellie makes her way to a bus station with very little money, and this is where she meets Clark Gable as Peter Warren, another traveler on the bus. He drunkenly tells his boss off and loses his job as a reporter, and he soon recognizes Ellie from her picture in the paper and comes up with a scheme that he will help her get to her husband if she gives him exclusive rights to a story. And if she refuses, he'll tell her father where she is. Just whatever gave you any idea I'd stand for this. Hey, now, wait a minute. Let's get this straightened out right now. If you're nursing any silly notion that I'm interested in you, forget it. You're just a headline to me. A headline? You're not a newspaper man, are you? Chalk up one for your side. Now listen, you want to get to King Wesley, don't you? All right, I'm here to help you. What I want is your story, exclusive. A day-to-day account, all about your mad flight to happiness. 
Since she doesn't have any money or much of a choice, she agrees. If anyone was wondering if they fall in love, they do. Slowly and surely, they go on several escapades and learn more and more about each other. And towards the end, they both realize that they are in love with the other person around the same time. But unfortunately, it's not communicated well. And while, I mean, it's classic chick flick, some miscommunications. Mm-hmm. And while Peter is getting the money from his former editor to marry Ellie, she decides to turn herself into her father because she thought that he had deserted her. They're both feeling a little hurt and rejected, but again, the characters never just sit down and talk about it. Peter goes to her father's house while Ellie's having an official engagement party for her and King. Her father has agreed to bless the wedding. And Ellie thinks that he's getting the reward money for her return. And Peter thinks that Ellie is having a great old time partying with all her rich friends. Peter only acts only actually asks for a small amount of money that he spent on her and refuses the reward money. The next day, as her father's walking Ellie down the aisle, he reveals to Ellie that Peter still loves her and that he didn't take the reward money. He also says that there's a car waiting for her if she wants to take off and marry Peter instead. So, what does she do? (laughs) You'll have to find out. Yes, the plot is pretty similar to Roman Holiday in a few re- in a few ways. So, what makes this one your favorite, though? Um, it's funny because so many actors and actresses read the script and hated it so much that they didn't want to have any part in it. But the script is what I really love, and I know it was changed a lot from before production to what actually was in the movie. But I love the back-and-forth banter between Gable and Colbert. I just had the unpleasant sensation of hearing you referred to as my husband. Oh, yeah. I forgot to tell you about that. I registered as Mr. and Mrs. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Well, what am I expected to do? Leap for joy? Well, I kind of half expected you to thank me. Your ego is absolutely colossal. Yeah, yeah, not bad. How's yours? Like, she can be so stuffy, and he's very firmly down to earth, and it's just fun to hear their banter. Um, But it's not just them. Like, the banter between, like, Ellie and her father is really charming, too. Like, it's just, I feel like it's just really well done scripts, and they have, like, a lot of good little quips. And the witty characters give this storyline a lot more depth than what's on the surface of the plot, I guess. For sure. Frank Capra directed this film. We've already reviewed some films that he's done, and he excelled in lighthearted silliness. The hitchhiking scene and the piggyback scene and the first night they share a room all have his fingerprints on them, and they're some of my favorite parts of the movie. I think he also (laughs) had a... He just had a good nose for small but sweet little stories. He was the one who bought the rights to the short story, which is called The Night Bus, and I read it. The film adaptation sticks really closely to the original story, and it struck me how exactly Capra was able to capture the tone and characters in the story. Peter is every bit as sarcastic and practical, and Ellie is the entitled rebel she was written as. Honestly, I I don't think anyone could have done it better. And by the way, did you know that he, Frank Capra, made a cameo appearance? He's the guy who sings the third verse of the Flying Trapeze song. Oh my gosh, he is not. 
that guy is not what I pictured for Frank Capra at all. <laughs> That's funny. Well, and did you know that there are a lot of things about the film that were taken, that inspired the Looney Tunes later on? Like how um, how Clark Gable eats a carrot, became like mm-hmm. Bugs Bunny, and there's a few other, like Shapely is supposed to have inspired a character, and I think the bus driver. Anyway, there's a bunch of characters that they turned into Looney Tunes later on. Yeah, and I re- I realized that watching that as a kid, I remember thinking that, but I thought that the Looney Tunes came first, which I I just didn't know what when the movie was made at all. Yeah, but but yeah, so I didn't realize that this movie was the inspiration for the Looney Tune characters, not the other way around. But it is such a trifling little story. It's it isn't that it isn't any wonder Capra had to work hard to get willing actors for the parts. Studios didn't even want to sink money into it, assuming the story was gutless and wouldn't amount to much. I think Gable said, let's get this over with on his first day of shooting. And (laughs) Claudette Colbert had to be paid double her normal fee. And even then, she was sulky the entire shooting, which probably actually helped her performance, to be honest. (laughs) As soon as it was wrapped, both stars were just eager to distance themselves from it. They kind of fled the scene, as it were. (laughs) Like I said, Frank Capra had a nose for a good thing. Lo and behold, it snatched up Oscars for all the major categories and was sensational. Yeah, I was surprised that not only was it the first movie to win the big five Oscars, but only two other movies have achieved this same level of of award. And do you know which ones they are? Yeah, I saw them listed and I thought it was funny how much darker they were than it happened one night. Putting all three yeah. of those on a list is funny. Do you want to tell them what tell what they are? One is uh, One Flew Over to the Cuckoo's Nest. And the next one was Silence of the Lambs. Super dark. Both really good. Or yeah, disturbing. Both really dark movies. <laughs> it happened one night because of his success catapulted its stars to greater successes and this was actually a period of transition for hollywood maybe not as difficult to navigate as the transition from world war ii for movie stars which we've talked about for a few people although i really have no idea but things changed in a big way the year it happened one night was released and it has to do with the production code that i mentioned so did you know that this film is credited with being the first or first successful execution of the screwball comedy? No. It Well, it is. <laughs> screwball <laughs> comedy, not to be confused with romantic comedy, has some very specific standards to fit the definition. There has to be slapstick, battle of the sexes, cross-dressing, or mistaken identity. It happened when night has both. She's both pretending to be someone she isn't, and she wears his pajamas. (laughs) It has to involve crossing social barriers and usually including a life-changing lesson for the wealthy, which I thought was an interesting requirement or maybe characteristic. You know, this is the first time in years I've ridden piggyback. This isn't piggyback. Of course it is. You're crazy. I remember distinctly my father taking me for a piggyback ride. And he carried you like this, I suppose? Yes. Your father didn't know beans about piggyback riding. 
My uncle, mother's brother, has four children, and I've seen them ride piggyback. I bet there isn't a good piggyback rider in your whole family. I never knew a rich man yet who could piggyback ride. The plot should be wacky and unlikely, and rapid-fire dialogue. Yeah, and this is what I love about the dialogue, like I was saying before. I was trying to watch it with my kids, and they kept asking questions. And I was like, guys, you can't ask me questions because we're missing the next joke. So <laughs> I, I told them no questions for this movie. <laughs> yeah, that happens to me with my favorite old reels. I have straight up stopped the film and had to rewind it because the best part about watching the movie is seeing their reactions to the jokes, and they spoil it when they talk over it. Right. But what you were saying before about all the screwball comedy requirements, those are all in Roman Holiday, too. Another similarity. I mean, so, yeah. Screwball comedy. Anyway, Except sorry. it doesn't end happily. I wonder if it would oh. be more just a romantic comedy because it's not quite as silly or, yeah. or goofy. Like, the mood isn't. I'm not really sure. Anyway, but there is a difference between romantic comedy and uh, screwball. It's the difference between an Audrey Hepburn movie and, like, a Lucille Ball movie, uh -huh. maybe, you know. But lastly, and most importantly, screwball comedies are known as sex comedies without the sex. Am I going to see you in New York? Nope. Why not? I don't make it a policy to run around with married women. There's no harm in your coming to see us. Not interested. Won't I ever see you again? What do you want to see me for? I've served my purpose. I brought you back to King Wesley, didn't I? That's what you wanted, wasn't it? And these distinctions are taken for granted now. I mean, it seems like we just described the 1930s to 1950s, didn't we? As far as cinema goes. I think we all look back at the film films during these decades, which was so squeaky clean and quaintly prudish with married couples having separate twin beds and not allowing pregnant women to yeah. be seen. The very idea of extramarital affairs could only be subtly hinted at, and anything untoward was meant to go over the heads of the young and impressionable. And even when it didn't, immorality was to be a lesson learned, not a defining personality trait of any of the characters. Mm. I think we modern film viewers like to point to a decade or a movie, or time in our lives where the propriety in film took a deep dive for better or for worse, depending on your point of view. But I've heard people do this plenty of times, and I think we've even done it a little on this podcast, you know, like, oh, man, those when films were just so sweet and innocent. Yeah, the good old days. Right. If you find yourself grieving for the good old days of film, though, take my advice. Don't look much further back than the mid-1930s, or you'll realize that the oldest days were not as virtuous as you might expect. That Which, is surprising to me. <laughs> listen, I, I doubt anyone would be surprised that Hollywood was known to be a veritable den of sin, especially in the early days. And the films reflected that. Just read any biography of any film star from that era. They weren't Sunday school children. <laughs> Popular plots were rich men taking advantage of beautiful but troubled women or seductresses putting men in compromising situations and loving it and anything that flouted conventional relationships. Men could often be seen dressed in tuxedos and putting moves on ladies draped over couches in their silky skivvies. 
And female characters were often, their character, were, they were prostitutes or women with pasts. Having them undress or shower or bathe or have a nip slip was what the movies were all about during that time. Furthermore, contrary to what you might expect, even same-sex relations were not unusual on screen, which that actually surprised me. Yeah, pardon me while I clutch my pearls. <laughs> and that isn't to say that all the movies made during these decades were salacious or saucy, but it was it was just the Wild West in the film industry still. Until religious organizations, especially those local to Southern California, urged studios to be more accountable for what they produced. And that whole movement, it's a complicated story, turned into the distinctly American period of cinema that we can identify today. After all, Europe didn't have that kind of movement in their cinema history. So the period of time I'm talking about is 1934 to 1968. The film industry had some self-imposed rules that were pretty strict, but many left it up, many of the rules kind of left it up for interpretation. Like, they couldn't make wrongdoing look fun, and they had to quit stomping on the institution of marriage. Brutality wouldn't be directly shown so as not to encourage imitation, and that went for any sort of crime. Safe cracking, bank robbing, theft, and hmm. but what I thought was interesting is gun use was limited to essentials. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no illegal drugs could be shown and alcohol is to be used only for characterization. I guess not, <laughs> not made to look really attractive, although I, I, I feel like that one was overlooked a lot, but it was supposed to be used for like, yeah. oh, he's the town drunk, for example, and no religion was to be made fun of, no abuse of children or animals. No depictions of specifically white slavery. and Interesting. Yeah. And there had to be reverence toward the flag. Also, the expected restrictions against depicting homosexual or interracial relationships, of course. The list goes on, and they make for an interesting read. <laughs> so <laughs> reading, reading these rules just kind of shows what a newcomer to classic cinema I am. Because the fact that some films included some of these things sort of surprises me. Not all of it, of course, but the the decades adhering to the production code in a way presented an alternate reality. And saying that is ridiculous, of course. That's the film industry's number one job is to present an alternate reality. But um, And I know that Hollywood didn't magically transform into a haven of high ideals afterwards, but you can get the impression from classic film during that period of time that people were far removed and starkly different from our modern selves the fact is yeah the fact is though they weren't people of the 1920s are not that different from the people of the 2020s yeah it was just a, a fake representation i think this production code also forces people into two schools of thought i think one group sees the code as censorship by those with antiquated moral sensibilities and they mourn the loss of authenticity and art and abundant sex and nudity and they'll argue that it aided in strengthening fierce puritanical virtue in the u.s and they'll point to cinema in european countries as being good examples of inoculating the public to nudity so that it isn't a big deal to them today nudity in the states is markedly less acceptable Sure, you can ridicule the effect of the production code of 1934. It's funny that we take note of movies 
that were brave enough to have double beds or show a pregnant woman or show interracial kissing. But you can also argue that the films that have had the greatest impact and are recognizable even today were made after the code was in force. And Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, for a relevant example, were very busy before it happened one night, but their most iconic roles were after the code was in place. Bit of trivia here, Colbert went topless in a previous movie, so she was not shy. But for It Happened One Night, <laughs> she initially objected to showing her leg for the hitchhiking scene. But when she saw her huh. Yeah. But when she saw her double's leg, she decided to show hers instead because apparently she felt like hers was better. <laughs> Aren't you going to give me a little credit? What for? Well, I proved once and for all that the limb is mightier than the thumb. Why didn't you take off all your clothes? You're going to stop 40 cars. Well, oh, I'll remember that, but we need 40 cars. Really, though, the standards would have m far more reaching power than just cutting out the naughty stuff, in my opinion. With the challenge of finding something to do on screen besides getting dressed, raped, or ravaged in their 90s, women characters were somewhat elevated, I think, after the code. Stories had to be a bit more clever than hitting the same seduction notes picture after picture. So the scene was set, as it were, for a new type of film, the screwball comedy, which came less from the genius minds of directors that were good at it, like Capra or Lubitsch or Carey, but out of necessity. Screwball had its start a few years previous to it happened one night, but Capra made it a thing. And you could argue that it reaches back to older goofy romances, like Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. Or Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. I sure do like both of those. <laughs> There's plenty of miscommunication mm -hmm. and absurdity in those examples. And they didn't lack much to be considered true screwball comedies. Especially per the code, the stars are looking for marriage and regret divorce or separation. While simultaneously they're poking lighthearted fun at the institution. Yeah, It's just a fantastic genre with smart characters that have... Witty banter, which I love. It's the best yes. kind of the best kind of silly escapism that hits all the right notes for me, and they end happily too. What do you think you're doing? Huh? The papers, the papers. What's the idea of throwing them out? Oh, oh, the papers? Yeah, that's a long story, my friend. I never did like the idea of sitting on newspapers. I did it once, and all the headlines came over my white pants. On the level, it actually happened. Nobody bought a paper that day. They just followed me around over town and read the news off the seat of my pants. Unlike the three yeah. that we watched earlier this month. Yeah, I prefer happy ending for sure, even though crying is supposed to be healthy every <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> but yeah, it's please, 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 please go see this movie. No amount of talking about it can quite give you the feel of the film because it is just full of those. I don't know, quick quips with each other. The dialogue and the acting is great. And if I loved this movie from the 1930s as a teenager, enough to watch it week after week, I'm sure anyone else will love it too. And currently it's free with ads on YouTube. So you don't even have to pay for it. Nice. And next week we'll be watching a new to me film all about Eve starring Betty Davis in a much prettier role than the last one we watched of her. So, Yeah, we're watching one yeah. that we've never seen before because 
we had so we had several weeks of solid ones that we were just love 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 now we're trying to throw a little bit of like who knows maybe we'll hate it maybe we'll love it and so join us for a discussion about it next week yeah i'm excited to to watch it sounds pretty good i'll see you next week see ya